Good evening, Anchorage, Alaska, the lower 48 and the rest of the world. It's Bruce Lindquist with his podcast, Wonderful Counselor. This is episode 19, and it's a mini-series. And so if you're new to listening to this podcast, I encourage you to go back to episode 15 um, so that you have some context as you're going into tonight's episode. Episode 18, though, was a departure from everything. It was a spooky story that I did for Halloween called The Netting, and I encourage you to listen to that. It was just so much fun, and uh, I hope you guys really enjoy it. Tonight's episode, episode 19, is entitled Lucifer Meets the Risen Christ. Once again, let's use that imagination of yours. Close your eyes, unless of course you're driving. You're walking in darkness. Then phantoms, like shadows, appear playing off the faint lights. A massive number of girls and women from ages 8 to 30 are huddled together, being guided as they travel in the Underground Railroad. Meg is leading the way. She has led many women who are in sex industry bondage to freedom. But 350 at one time was more than she had seen in her 15 years of this ministry. And they had decided to come with her for an opportunity for a new life. She was broken hearted though. She couldn't talk the other 150 to come with her as some chose to return to their villages but a majority returned to the industry they've known since they were children. It wasn't safe work. They were often brutalized by their owners or customers. But when it's all you know, even when you're beat half to death, it's a familiar type of pain. Meg knew their wounds they carried oh so well. Because as a, as a little girl at the age of six, she was passed around being an adult play toy by her parents for drugs. Then when her mom decided to kill her and sell her body parts to support her habit, she escaped and found herself as a homeless child with only one skill set. She was eight. The woman named Nadia was so kind to her and gave her a place to live, clothes to wear, she could take a hot bath, a shower, eat a good meal. She knew Nadia only did this because her little body would keep her warm at night. But she was the closest thing to a mother she'd ever had. So it's better to give your body away to someone who is kind than someone who beats you, she believed. By age nine, she was the best spy in town. Sometimes men and women would treat her nicely, but other times they did everything imaginable to her because the customer was always right. She learned at age 10, during a particularly painful abusive attack, she could leave her body and watch, and watch above it like a movie. She would only remain present for those who didn't brutalize her. By the time she hit 15, her body had rapidly changed. She outgrew one set of customers and graduated to another. By the time she was 17, she got to the point she hated her body, and for the next 13 years, washed away memories and the pain with alcohol or whatever drugs she could find. 32 years of her life, she hated her body, and then she met one whose body was literally ripped apart for what was done to her and what out of pain she did to others. 
Her body, like his, carried marks of sadistic torture. But unlike Jesus, there was healing in his wounds, not unforgiveness, bitterness, and revenge. Her wounds were now clothed in scars, like his were. Before the invisible wounds cut into her heart with every beat, now those were healed as well. Instead of hating, she prays. Praise for those who did damage to her in unspeakable ways. As well as for those over the years she led through these freedom tunnels. Her heartbeat was now in beat with Jesus and would live her life with her healed wounds reaching out to those whose stories she only knew so well. Soon they would be at Grace's house, a woman who the Holy Spirit spoke through when she gave her life to Christ. The women would be safe on the frozen land of the wilderness estate. She held a little eight-year-old girl. She had hollow eyes. All the girls and women did. They stopped feeling human a long time ago and in many ways looked like walking corpses, mere shells of who they were. John and William were at a local library watching young children listen intently to a man wearing a dress, a wig, clothed in unicorn pride colors, sort of like a reincarnated Care Bear, sharing his wisdom from the magic rainbow. You can be anything you want to be, he said. In other words, what do you want to be when you grow up? A cowboy, a teacher, an astronaut? That's what that used to mean, but not anymore. The drag queen was telling the little boys and girls, if you have a body of a boy or a girl, it doesn't mean anything. Only thing that matters is what you feel is right. He says suggestively to the children, why, once you explore yourself, you may find lots of ways to make yourself happy, and that includes loving anyone or anything you want. It's your heart's desire that speaks what's true, not your parents and not even your body. And if you're not true to yourself, you're like the child stuck in the story. He was a boy, but then with tender care and counselors and teachers and doctors, they helped him realize the truth. He wasn't a boy at all. In fact, all his boy problems went away when he became a girl. And you can be too. Just like the girl in the story. John watched the parents sit there and let this glittering prophet teach their kids. As drag story hour ended, Joe, a.k.a. Josephine, really believed she'd done good work. She was proud of herself. At John's instructions, William gave her a letter. It was just the right amount of money for her to go to college for gender studies. She hugged William, her makeup smeared on his shirt, as she cried tears of happiness. John knew she'd be at the top of her class, and she'd continue to work in the library, but more than that, she'd be a force for gender transition. John also knew the reason why Josephine was now a drag queen, for his dad sexually abused that little boy, just like his dad had sexually abused him. Oh, how John loved generational sin. It left the one abused so full of self-loathing. When Joe was just a little boy, his counselors couldn't ask him child abuse questions because they'd be fined, and that was considered conversion therapy thanks to the assembly. No, if he didn't like his body, it could only mean one thing. 
and repeatedly he was told it by professionals until he finally believed it. He was really a girl trapped in a boy's body. And while many became drag queens, didn't have gender reassignment surgeries, Joe did. And now, he was in all his pride and glory, Josephine. Peggy's son, Billy, who was seven, was listening intently to Josephine and said to his mom, Is it true I can be anything I want to be? And his mom looked at John, the only other adult left in the room, for William left to get John a bitter cup of coffee. John got down an eye level with Billy and said, What do you want to be, Billy? Billy said, I'm not a boy, I'm a puppy. John playfully barked with Billy. Peggy thought, it's a phase, like dinosaurs. One day it would be something else, but now I have a son playing like he's a puppy. It could be worse, she thought. He could think he was a cat. She didn't like cats. So glad she wouldn't have to buy him a litter box. She took Billy to the costume shop and bought him a dog costume. Then got him a doggy bed, a dish, a warm doggy sweater too big for a big dog so it would fit over him. He got to pick out his own toys, bone to chew, and even a flea collar. Peggy put down his doggy bed right next to their dog Rex, and there they were. Well, I guess I have two puppies, said Peggy. Next morning, she noticed the doggy door was open. No Rex or Billy. She called, but they were gone. She searched the neighborhood frantically, running up and down the road. And then there was Rex chasing the truck, and right after him was Billy. The truck, however, didn't see either one of them. Rex was killed instantly, and Billy was thrown by the momentum of the truck like an old discarded bone off to the side of the road. Piggy ran to her son and held him crying as his body shook in uncontrollably pain. She called 911. The ambulance arrived. They cut off his flea collar and doggy suit and provided CPR. The EMTs worked on him until at last he started breathing, but his eyes remained closed. The prognosis from the doctors later was Billy had a head injury that caused him to go into a coma. Peggy now wept at his hospital bed, and she would every day. If her son died, she would never forgive herself, and thought for the first time of a bridge close by, and how she could just make it all go away. If she just jumped, she could join him somewhere in that vast, cruel universe. John smiled, thinking about Billy and his tormented mom, and asked William to take him to the local abortion clinic. He had an appointment with the CEO. Frank shook John's hand. He wasn't a bad guy. He believed he was helping women by removing tissue and, and freeing them and being, to have more empowered lives. He was proud of his work. Besides, it paid very well. Helping humanity, overseeing health care for women, Frank saw himself as a compassionate person. John showed Frank a business plan. He was impressed. He had a question, though. Where would he get more buildings? John also made a quite large donation. Alaska would be the hub, not only of the U.S., but of the world for abortion. And as far as those buildings go, he shared with him his secret. As John was leaving, he saw a frightened 17-year-old girl named Blaine, who was on the fence whether to get, go through it or not. No one was with her. She was on her own, feeling quite helpless. John came up to her like the dad she didn't have and listened to her struggle. Should I do it? she asked. 
apparently to her only friend in the world. He told her, it takes courage to take charge of your life. There's plenty of time for children. You think I'm courageous, the young woman said. Of course, said John. Why, you inspire me the way you pursue your dreams. Will I forget, she said. Of course, said John. You will look back on this being a life-changing decision. Elaine thanked John and decided to go through with it. John knew after the procedure was done how it would haunt her nights, and he liked contributing to her nightmares. The way he had it planned, her conscience would eventually be deadened. She would soon be permissive with her lifestyle even more and have more abortions. It does get easier after the first one, so she would be in competition with her friends. How many abortions they could have? John smiled. Or she might just be so full of shame and guilt that she ended her life. Either way, it was a win-win for John, and then he could torture her for eternity, the same way her baby would be ripped out of her. When John returned to the penthouse, he thought about the day. Oh, he loved when humans didn't know what the, who they were. They didn't realize they were made in God's image. He thought about the epidemic of abortion through the years. He was so pleased genocide was legalized. He thought about all the young boys and girls that would have gender reassignment surgeries, not ever having children because they're willing to take the advice of professionals and have been talked into mutilating their bodies. John hated humans and to take away being moms or dads, so much for being fruitful in God's plan. So many babies murdered by their mothers. He loved women's health care. John didn't want humans to exist, so kill them right inside supposedly the safest place is perfect. Humans. Animals were less savage to their children. Despite encouraging the destruction of humanity, didn't have a good night. He was nervous about tomorrow. He paced a bit. Morning will soon come and he'll have to face his fear. He loved terrorizing others, better yet inspiring with a little nudge, humanity to terrorize each other. He especially had a fond place in his heart for children's suffering, especially in horrible ways, and it seemed like there wasn't an endless supply. Human machine would keep rolling on, it was big business, and now kindergartner teachers were part of the process over sexualizing children. He thought about the sex trade industry. Little girls and little boys, the younger they were, the more years they were worth. One's body could last about 30 years. That was quite the investment. He didn't have to work very hard either. Lust and money would win most of the time. He was quite proud of how he helped inspire humans to literally consume each other in every possible way. John looked at the clock. It was time. He drove over to Dr. Lee's, Lynn's office and made his nine o'clock appointment. With bitter coffee in hand, he greeted the doc. How's Joan, he said, still the non-talkative self? Dr. Lee wasn't amused. Will she make it, John? How many times, doc, do I have to tell you I'm Lucifer? Will she make it, Lucifer? I haven't decided yet. No pressure, but that depends on how today's session goes. Dr. Lynn sat down in his office. Okay, Lucifer. The tape has started now. I have the lights and the paddles set up. It's time. I love your efficiency, Doc, said Lucifer. 
Well, as I said before, I was having the best night of my life. I crucified the Messiah, dead, buried. I didn't crush his head, though. Those religious, prideful priests, I don't even think they needed me. I remember taking a victory lap, and there was Judas, hanging on the tree, watching the birds of prey, picking his flesh. It was a great night, Doc. Judas in hell is so fun to torture. The demons give him little pieces of silver, and he lives out the betrayal for eternity. And then he hangs himself all over again. The priests, however, were freaking out. Something about Jesus raising from the dead. They were worried about his followers stealing away his body. Are you kidding me? When you watch the one you left everything to follow crucified, you're not thinking about robbing graveyards. They went into hiding. They were fearful the Roman soldiers would bring them to a cross with their names on it. Even though the Roman leaders weren't buying the you know, dead man walking thing, the rulers at the time wanted to keep the peace at all costs. If word got back to Caesar that that leader wasn't able to handle the situation, it wouldn't just be a promotion out of this desert hellhole. He'd be missing his head. So the Roman leader sent two of his best guards to the tomb with orders. If they fell asleep or left the tomb, they'd be killed. The tomb was sealed. Wax! Both soldiers knew the cost. No one comes in and out of that tomb. Well, they weren't concerned about someone coming out, but they were concerned about someone coming in and getting Jesus. Everything was in place. I'd encourage the Romans and the priests to have crucified anyone who was with Jesus. People were just terrified. And I loved it. The demons, Doc, we were having a party. We roasted a lot of souls like marshmallows. That night it was our celebration. I remember hearing those words he spoke from the cross. It's finished. It's true. It was finished. He was finished. I was even doing a little jig. Doc, eventually you're going to come to my house. But let me give you a little bit of a picture. There are those I torture beyond anything you can imagine. It's fun. It's a hobby. It's my passion. Uh, I love hurting humans. Then there's this section I can't torture. They're kind of dead, but more asleep. And for some reason, I can't get to them. So I just pile up their bodies in the corner. You know, let sleeping dogs lie. Who are these souls, Lucifer? said Dr. Lin. They're those who believed and trusted God. Some reward for them, though, huh? Dead? Thrown in a corner? In my hell? You pause, Lucifer. Yeah, this is where the EMDR therapy starts, doesn't it, Doc? Okay. I'll stare into the light. It was dark. Just like I like it. Demons roasting humans, feasting on their flesh and bones, tormenting their souls. Then it happened. You know when you think you hear or see something that just couldn't be? Your mind tries to make sense of a reality that it can't be possible? Doc, that's what happened. A specific memory, Lucifer. More lights and paddles, back and forth, and now the finger. Okay, Dr. Lin. There was this explosion of light, a billion times brighter than the sun, that blinded the demons. Someone walked out of that light towards me, and I could see where it was, and I started shaking. Doc, I don't shake before anyone, but what I saw was horrific, too horrific for words. 
It was the Messiah, the risen Christ. I saw the nail holes in his hands, his feet. He was alive in hell with me. For the first time in my life, Doc, I couldn't move. I just stared into his eyes. They were like fire, this purifying fire that just, it was, it was too much. Then he said, arise. I mean, with such authority. And all those who believed in God and trusted him, those, those who were asleep in the corner, they came, they woke up, they came alive. And they walked toward him. He lit up all of hell. And he set him free. Then he said these words. And he, and he spoke like the sword was coming out of him. Right? It, it's just, the word was so powerful. He said, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that I'm Lord to the glory of the Father. And I was face planted on the dirt. I had to acknowledge who he was. He took the keys away from my kingdom. Then he sent the shockwave. He'll be back and finish me off. My kingdom would be destroyed forever. Okay, Lucifer, look at the lights. Now my finger, keep processing. I literally saw my future flash before my eyes. These humans would reign with him. Humans that I so despised would rule it. It was too much for my mind to take. I shuddered. I couldn't get off the floor until he left. Doc! It wasn't just Jesus, but it was the Holy Spirit that raised him from the dead. My empire of death and hell and the grave, it was shattered. Okay, Lucifer, look back and forth into the light, and now my finger. Then this angel showed up, right? And, and the stone blew away, and, and, and the soldiers ran away in terror. Doc, then he appeared to his followers, and, he got, and they got empowered by Holy Spirit. After that, he returned to heaven and sat at the right hand of the Father. I saw him in heaven. He's now King of kings and Lord of lords. Doc, he's coming back to finish and crash my head. He's going to throw me into the lake of fire for eternity. Doc, these followers of Jesus, they're used from God to change the ancient world. I lost so many souls. Even my favorite Pharisee, Saul, followed Christ. I was losing the known world to his kingdom. Doc, I hate the Messiah. I hate humans. I really hate Christ followers because they have his spirit. Oh, I don't, religious people are a lot of fun. I have a field day with them. Those priests who tried to cast out the demons got the hell beat out of them. But believing Christ followers filled with the Spirit, it's too much. Keep looking at the light, Lucifer, and now my finger. Doc, today's Easter Resurrection Sunday. I failed, Doc. It's the one thing to be defeated by a live person. I was defeated by somebody who was dead. To someone who is alive now. This whole resurrection thing. It's just too much. The doctor stopped for a moment. Then Lucifer called out, screaming, No! Josephine, not you. Someone's talking to him, Doc, about his child abuse. No! Josephine now knows the truth. He's going to go back to being a man again. No! What now, Lucifer? That young woman I was encouraging to have an abortion. A woman came up to her and shared her story. Showed her the ultrasound of her baby. I lost another one. She didn't murder her kid. What is it about this day? This day can't get worse, Doc. I lost then. I lost now. I'll lose in the future. Keep looking at the light, Lucifer. And now my finger. When the session ended, Lucifer did feel a lot of his trauma was integrated. He wasn't dreading Good Friday anymore. He was, though, emotionally and mentally exhausted. The bitter coffee he could finally taste again, and he thanked the doc. Don't forget about our appointment tomorrow, Lucifer. It's your last session, said Dr. Lin. 
After Lucifer left, Dr. Lin sat back thoughtfully in his chair. For the first time, his skeptical heart was shaken. He had been conducting thousands of trauma sessions. He stayed compartmentalized, but after this one, he was shaken, questioning everything he believed in. Could it be true? Did he really have counseling sessions with the devil? And is Jesus really the savior of the world? His savior? Dr. Lin looked up and said, If you're really the Savior, reveal yourself to me. You know I'm skeptical. Just then the phone rang. Dr. Lin picked up the phone. It was Joan. She was out of her coma, asking for him. In his heart he heard a voice, Believe and receive. He knelt down and prayed, for the first time acknowledging he was a sinner and needed a Savior and a Lord. And the presence of the Holy Spirit fell on him hard. And he left his kingdom he left the kingdom of darkness and entered into the kingdom of light on Resurrection Sunday morning. Joan wasn't the only one who came out of a coma. When Billy opened his eyes, his mom hugged him. Then, when he could talk to her, he said, I don't want to be a puppy anymore, Mom. You're not going to be a puppy, said his mom. You're my son, and for all your life, you'll always be my son. I'm so sorry, she said. I listened to them. I'm your mother. It's my job to protect you. I'm not going to listen to anyone else who says any different. You're my boy. Resurrection Sunday service at the little church had new members. Dave. Chris's widow Sharon and her three kids accompanied to service. He had joined the little church, got a job, and sensed the Holy Spirit leading him to Sharon, Chris's widow. He found her out of a hospital at home with a terminal disease and struggling to survive. At first, Dave cared for Sharon more out of duty, and Sharon connected to Dave because she didn't have anyone else. But over time, service and sacrifice blossomed into friendship and then companionship, and David would care for Sharon until her dying day and also take care of her boys. Meg led the women to the frozen estate, to a location that will not be named in this podcast due to secrecy as needed for the women's protection. Grace came out to meet with the women, and Meg joined her, and they prayed for them. And the Holy Spirit was speaking to each of them, from the youngest to the oldest, and they repented, every woman confessing their sins, surrendering to Jesus as Savior and Lord, from the youngest to the oldest. They forgave the unforgivable, because God forgave the unforgivable within them. The first thing that they noticed was the change in their eyes. They no longer had hollow eyes, but a sparkle of color, and their faces had radiance on them. Megan Grace led them to the underneath warm springs. It was a hot spring where they were baptized. It was their resurrection day. Lucifer sat in the penthouse. He was free of his trauma. The experience with the risen Christ was fully integrated in his body. He couldn't do anything about Christ rising from the dead. Even when he inspired most of the disciples to be killed, Christians to be fed to lions, all it did was make the kingdom of God stronger. I lost. I can accept that, he said. He couldn't stop God's plan for redemption. It happened. But just because it happened doesn't mean people will believe and receive it. He smiled. As he was falling asleep, tomorrow his plan would be revealed. He can't wait to see Dr. Lin's face when William delivers to him the letter.
Where are you in the story? Can I ask you that question? Perhaps words like physical, emotional, or sexual abuse are just that words to you. But if you've lived through them, or maybe you're in the industry, or maybe you're one of those who's taken pleasure of these little fragile bodies. Perhaps you're like Josephine, who the professionals talk to in changing your gender, or a mother of a child who bought into the lie her little boy or little girl could be anything he chose to be, a puppy, a girl, anything. Maybe like Joan, you're shut away in your own mind to protect you from ending your life. Or like Paul, the businessman who sees he's humanitarian, even though he's got a trail of bloody bodies and babies behind him. Or Dr. Lin, who devoted his life to end human suffering. Or David in recovery from addiction and deciding for the rest of his life to do good. Have you found yourself in the many characters in the story? Perhaps you haven't. But regardless, you have a choice. There are no unredeemable people, just people who choose to stay dead or be made alive in Christ. This Resurrection Sunday, Jesus, we're reminded Jesus rose from the dead. This podcast is bringing to your attention, you too can be brought back to life. The choice is yours, and it's always been yours. Do you raise with Jesus? Or do you spend eternity with um, Lucifer? The choice is yours. The next episode, episode, I'm losing track now. I think it's episode 20. Revenge of the Father of Lies.